Welcome to the Goddesses of Social Work podcast, hosted by Renita Ray Davis, licensed clinical social worker, board-approved social work clinical supervisor, and facilitator of the Goddesses of Social Work supervision community. Join us as we travel through the social work journeys told by the Goddesses of Social Work community members, past and present, as they make their way toward clinical licensure. Welcome to the Goddesses of Social Work podcast. I am here today with Dr. Lauren Richardelli, who has been full-time tenure-track social work faculty in higher education for five years. Lauren is currently with the Department of Social Work at the University of West Florida in Pensacola, where she teaches research methods, evaluation, theory, social policy, and practice. Lauren earned her MSW and PhD in social work from the University of Georgia in 2011 and 2017, respectively and she is licensed as an LMSW in the state of Georgia. Her direct practice experience includes Department of Juvenile Justice, involved youth and their families, youth with serious emotional disturbance in the school setting, adults with intellectual developmental disabilities in the community setting, and renal dialysis. Lauren's practice experience has informed her research interests. She has been published in peer-reviewed journals across the arenas of social work, criminal justice, disability, and public policy. As well, she has presented her research at professional, regional, and national conferences and served as an invited speaker for the Office of the Georgia Capitol Defender and the Federal Bureau of Prisons. Welcome, Lauren. So glad to have you on the show today. Well, thank you for having me, Bernita. And this is really a testament to you and the work that you're doing, especially um, considering you know some of my thoughts and views around social media. Um, but this work is so important, and it's an honor to be with you today. And I want to thank you for the invitation. I'm so glad. I'm so glad you said yes. I really am. <laughs> Dr. R, as I call you, and as I know many, many, many of your students call you, reading your bio, I'm reminded of one of the many things I learned from you and our social work community together. You can't have micro practice without research and policy application. Do you mind speaking to that a bit? Sure. Um, These are ideas that I work with regularly, whether it's in the classroom when I'm teaching history theory and philosophy of social work, or even in my own um, line of research. And and so basically what we're talking about is a structural approach to social work. And using this framework, right, we see that there's not a true division between the micro and macro, that these things are interconnected. And that makes sense too, if we look at, if we use, for instance, a systems theory, Um, framework to understand the interconnectedness of all of this. And so what I picture are sort of these nesting dolls or what have you, um, where the systems have subsystems, but everything is kind of working in conjunction. And so the idea is there's a false division, right? How do we really integrate some of these macro and micro, I guess, foci um, and bring them together? And this work um, of, I think, really kind of bringing that macro background to the forefront within a clinical practice context um, plays out, again, in my research, so specifically looking at um, things around criminal legal systems and the death penalty 
Well, there are all kinds of, there's all, all different levels at which we, as social workers and other professionals, engage in this discourse. And of course, that includes the um, clinical, right, and the work with individuals and families on up to research and, and policy and kind of these larger systems at play, including criminal legal systems themselves. Um, in my area, it's also looking at and linking up with um, disability rights and systems of care related to that. This also plays out in my research on social media. So as we know where we're going with technology, I'm sure this might come up later in the interview. Um, you know, the question is, of course, these macro issues, including policy about that's going to have impact on people's privacy and even our own privacy and our own rights, right? How these larger issues, which, and frankly, it's a global conversation at this point, um, are going to converge on and impact clinical direct practice. Um, so, and that's a quickly moving landscape, I think, as we're all aware, uh, well aware. <clears throat> so it's good, I think, and it's part of being critically minded um, to understand that this division between the micro and macro um, is, is arbitrary and, and sort of this false divide. And really what we're talking about is where we put our focus. And I make the case, um, you know, in general, and I and I wrote in the in my death penalty book. Well, it takes people from all the different positions to work together and in coordination. And there may be um, some tension between that micro and macro, uh, but critical a critical uh, theoretical framework is going to hold that this tension is really inherent in in all relationships. So our job is to kind of identify what those contradictions and tensions are and then work through that. Oh my goodness, that was a great answer. You took me all the way back to graduate school. <laughs> can we can we bring it back, bring it down a little bit? You know, we're in Sagittarius season, you know, I love my seasons. And that was very high level. Let's let's bring it for especially for some of our MSW students and maybe even the LMSW and I'm thinking about your social media work, right? And privacy and confidentiality. And, you know, we're seeing a lot of therapists, you know, doing like the meme work and pretending like they're the client and the therapist. And there's just a, there's a, there's a fine line that um, I think some of us are watching others playing out. Some do it pretty well and some maybe not so well, but the privacy and confidentiality of our clients and for ourselves as it relates to social work code of ethics, could you speak to how are we catching up or are we catching up um, to that? So I, I'll just kind of speak briefly to that question. How are we catching up? Okay, so I used this analogy in class before and I thought, when nobody got it, um, not that it was a bad analogy, but just I'm um, old. And, but then I got to Florida and I was telling my colleague about this analogy and he's like, what are, what the heck are you talking about? Okay, but here it is for anybody out in the audience who gets it. Um, we are as a whole overdriving our headlights, right? When you're at a certain speed, you need to put your high beams on so that you can adequately assess what's in front of you to drive safely. And it feels like right now we're we're in the dark with our low beams on and we are going very, very fast. 
basically, I'm just excited to share that analogy. Uh, <laughs> in answer to your question, I think this is not um, an issue unique to social work, but one that confronts us as a human society in general. Um, and But specific to social work, we do have um, professional bodies, you know, we have a technology task force um, comprised of different um, professional groups and who are trying to work through these issues in earnest and um, are, I think, doing the very best that they can in what is a quickly uh, changing environment. Um, you know, and I think we kind of get into philosophical questions about can you can you slow the world down, right? Can you unrelease what's already kind of out there? Um, I don't have an answer. I mean, I have a gut instinct that the answer is no, but in some sense, we kind of have to do that. And one way to slow that down um, is to do so through regulation. And you regulate these companies, right? And this is going to get into tax systems and who's paying into the system or not. Um, and then, of course, I always like to explain the importance of a fair tax system to students and and how this relates to how our programs are funded. Um, I think I just took us on a tangent. Are we keeping up with technology? No, nobody is. Um, are we doing our best? I think so. Is that good enough? I don't know. It doesn't, uh, there's something deeply unsatisfying about that. Um, and with regard to, I'm actually working on a piece right now with my colleague, Stephen McGarry at University of Tennessee, um, but I also had the opportunity to bring in actually one of my students' husbands who's in cybersecurity and expert in IT. And what we're working on kind of in the vein of the social media line of research is looking at the digital welfare state, which is well underway. Um, and it's not just here in the United States, but it's a across the pond um, and looking at things like using algorithms to make determinations on benefits eligibility. It really kind of takes the human element out of it. And to me, um, that's I, it's scary to be blunt about it for a couple of different reasons. But I think that as we as a profession kind of grapple with these considerations, it would, and we of course are an interdisciplinary profession. I think we really need to get some IT people, some people who are very skilled and expert in technology to assist us in how we are coming to understand things and, and how we develop forward looking policy. Um, there was, I had the opportunity to attend some, um, wasn't a CE event, but it was some sort of talk um, about the use of artificial intelligence. And I think it's great to have the social work perspective, but I also think that we need to have that information from the experts in that arena. And then we take that and we adopt it sort of, we, we give it a logic based on what is our code of ethics. Um, because even though open for uh, up to interpretation, you know, our code of ethics are, are pretty essential and central and should not be changing um, as we do go forward, even within a, a what looks like a very different learning and practice environment. That was such a great answer, Lauren.
And I, for one, got your analogy. I saw it. I okay. Because yes. you've been in the car before, right? Yes. Turn your high beams on. All I can do is like, dad, yell at me, turn your high beams on. So yes, I got it. For our safety. And that's where we are. I completely agree with you. Before we get too, too far, I want you to tell us, if you don't mind, you know, what was your social work journey? Lauren, how did you get into social work? And, you know, what, what, what got you where you are now? Okay. Um, so um, a couple of things come to mind. One is, I think, without even the title of social work, I think I just had the and, and I think this came out in a lot of the interviews that you did that I had the privilege of listening to. And boy, did I enjoy hearing everybody's story. Um, there is a sense of, and I won't use the word calling for me. It doesn't fit, but just a sense of this is who I am. There's something, I think, um, existentially meaningful in terms of um, being of service to others, feel like you're making a difference. Uh, especially if you're able to, here's another analogy that I'd like to share. And somebody, somebody gave this to me, right? It's not my, it's not as good as the uh, headlight analogy, but so when I was first getting, and I guess we'll circle back to this. Um, when I was first getting into the juvenile justice stuff, uh, my buddy, Mark, who helped me to get the job at that company, um, it was a wraparound case management. So you're going into these homes and you want to talk about power dynamic. You're uninvited, the support mandated, and you're asking all kinds of very sensitive questions. So, um, uh, you know, anyway, something I like to talk about with my students too is that um, inherent power dynamic and being mindful of that and giving people their space to express their power when possible. Uh, he, Mark said, you know, think about it. Don't go in there thinking you're going to just see difference and positive difference and difference right away. Think about it in terms of planting seeds. And that it resonated with me then. And it resonates with me to this day. And I think it's good. It's a good framework or it works well for me. Um, not just in terms of that direct practice element, but also in terms of being just having professional relationships, just in just in creating relationships, period which is of course always central to what we do in social work, no matter what kind of social work we're doing, that relationship is, is central. But I like the idea of it's about planting seeds because I think it helps us to manage expectations, right? Not to glorify what the work is and our own um, you know, healing abilities, right? It's not about us, it's about the, the person, about the family, about the group, about the community, about society. So I, I like that. That's helped me to manage my own expectations and also to take risks, right? So if there is somebody I'm like, this is potentially like a great professional connection. Now they might not return the sentiment. Usually people are nice and sometimes I don't hear back, but you know, I tell myself I'm planting the seed. And also just because it doesn't, we're going full tilt with this analogy, just because it doesn't bloom when you expect it to, doesn't mean something's not going to take root. Um, and sometimes those are the most meaningful moments is where something something is growing and you didn't expect it to, right? And it's kind of like the life's mystery, sort of, uh, I hope I don't get in trouble for this, but in thinking about, well, how does learning happen? And uh, I was a philosophy undergrad and I really didn't have any idea what I was reading. I did the best I could 
but I was intrigued by all these ideas. I really, really, I, I love philosophy, even though um, it really, it took me down a path of restaurant work, which actually in, in a way prepared me very much for social work. Um, and we can of course talk about that more later. Can I, can I speak to your analogy though? Cause I know we are both plant mamas, right? And in fact, I'm looking at one of the plants that has just with the right lighting, with the right water has just blew up. <laughs> I think it's going to strangle me in my sleep. For right <laughs> I love it, but you're absolutely right. I have, you know, in, in my own plant, you know, world, I have plants that surprisingly took off and went places I wasn't expecting. So I even have this one plant that for years was just sitting there doing nothing. It wasn't dying, but it wasn't growing. And then one day I decided to put it in a new location and it just, now it's taking over, right? And then I have some plants that I really had high hopes for that after, you know, one really strong wind decided that was the end of it, right? So planting the seed with our clients, we can be really surprised moving them into a new location, giving them an idea and, or like you said, managing our expectation that some clients just may not get it. It may not, they may not get it from you, but they may get it from the next person that comes their way. And it, it reminds me of plant and environment. <laughs> okay. Social work joke. Uh, you know what? I love social work jokes. They're my favorite. <laughs> Uh, so all, all that was a long uh, walk about to get to. I always kind of had this a very strong sense of um, within me what is just, what is fair. And I never did well sitting back and watching other people, other groups of people being taken advantage of or in some way mistreated. I find it very hard to sit there and allow that to happen. And that itself has been a learning experience. Um, so. And then that's sort of coupled with, I like to give people their space and that works well also for social work because people get to have self-determination. Now, granted, it's socially responsible self-determination, but that's their space to make their own decisions. Um, so in, in combination, these things worked well, but so I kind of always had it in my spirit. I would end up doing something to help people. I remember my dad asked me when I was very young, I sat in the car in the back seat and said, what are you going to do when you get older? Like, you want to know how much money? No, I'm just kidding. He was like, what are you going to do? And I, I was very young, but immediately is I'm going to help people. And he said, okay. And that was it. Um, you know, fast forward, I get a, a degree in philosophy um, which took me to so like love of wisdom, right? But I think it is love of working in the in pizza restaurants because I did that for a long time. And boy, did I learn a lot about life. And I think just all I will say is if you've worked in a restaurant, you know, there's a lot of context and subtext there, especially depending on the kind of restaurant that you're in. Um, so that sort of gave me, and, and honestly, it gave me a lot of good um people experience right um and it was from that job so I, I told you about my friend mark um doyle who's now i believe still a speech pathologist but in the day we were working in the at gumby's in athens georgia and so he had a job with this um impact counseling and consulting he's like you should get on and at first i was like ah, you know my degrees in philosophy but they made the case it's, it's close enough related 
And I did have, I like this. I had, you know, my background is a little bit of arts. So I took a lot of sociology and psychology, which is kind of how I knew I would eventually make it to social work or something similar. Um, so it, that was really the foot in the door because my, then my supervisor, and I think, I, I don't know if it still exists or not, but your CEO. And I remember him saying, Lauren, have you thought about getting an MSW? And I hadn't, I, the thought never occurred to me, but when he said that, I was like, well, that sounds like something to do. And he offered to write a letter of support and I thought, okay. And from there it was it was very much now an official route in the in the journey. And I think when I got into that MSW program, it was a really exciting time. Um, I was really, I, I really loved the other students in the program. I really enjoyed what that community was and what it became after graduation was so important. And I loved our faculty there that I had as a student. And there, it was easy to pick something out in everyone that clearly they excelled in that I thought I'd like to learn from them. I'd like to put this skill in my, in my toolkit. Um, and beyond the MSW, and I will just say, um, you know, it took, I was location bound. I wanted to stay in Athens, whereas a lot of my colleagues were willing to go elsewhere or at least to go to Atlanta, um, where there's a ton of opportunity, but I stayed put. And so what that meant was I worked in a, in a pizza restaurant for about six months after getting my MSW, waiting to get my first social work job, which I did, you know, just hang in there and, and be persistent. So my first job was with a dialysis clinic, like technically as a as an MSW. And of course, because they um, bill for Medicaid care, they needed to have a social worker on staff. So that became me and I sat for and became licensed in 2012 while I was working for Fresenius. And from there, and that was a nice um, experience. And I moved from that experience back to I went back to the adults in the community with intellectual uh, um, and developmental disability. My heart is is really there. I mean, it's been in all my jobs. Juvenile justice would be a close second, but it's really what sung to me was the community-based work and, and working with the adults. I sometimes think um, there's a lot of attention given maybe to younger folks and to and to children of course kids are important we love them and we need them to be and to do well and i i'm kind of positioned myself strategically um to work with the adults um in some sense who might be a forgotten population um and so that was after taking that second job working in the community with the adults with disabilities um that's when i decided i'm going to go back and get a phd um, because what I had witnessed across all of the work, right, you, you notice, and this goes back to that issue of micro macro, you notice these systems, or, or these patterns rather, in our systems of care. Some of these patterns include using one exploited group to take care of another exploited group, not paying well, right? And so when I say like, I'm justice driven, like these things drove me up the wall. This is not right. There's got to be a way. Um, so I thought 
maybe I will go on and do a PhD. But of course, prior to doing that, I thought I was going to be a clinical social worker. I did the clinical track at UGA, um, was during that time sitting for supervision hours. And that was the plan. Um, but really getting out there and noticing these things that just, um, I thought this can be constructed better. This can be done better. Um, that's what led me to pursue the, the PhD. Um, because I became, I, I came up with questions that I wanted answers to. And, and I think in some way, it's a little bit of a coping mechanism. Like when I, when I have questions about something or something might make me uncomfortable, I intellectualize it. I want to study it. And this takes some of the unknown and the anxiety out of it. Um, but any, anyhow, all to say, I, th I think in a roundabout way, that was my philosophy, pizza, juvenile justice, dialysis, uh, disabilities, and then let's go back to school. So I, I, you know, I, that's my social work journey, I think. I love it. And let's start back with sitting in the back seat and your dad says, what are you going to do? And you knew you were going to help people. Do you feel like the PhD allows you to do that? And in what way does it do that for you? Oh, that's a great question. I think it, it does. I think, um, and in fact, in thinking about and getting ready for this interview, I've, I've kind of reflected on things I hadn't before. Um, you know, why get a PhD for, for those in the audience or a DSW, um, for those in the audience who are considering going past the MSW degree, I think that it has allowed me many, many opportunities and access to many, many different things and resources and people to which I might not have had. In fact, probably wouldn't have had. Um, so it's been transformative in that way. I mean, it's also, I mean, it's just, it's changed, it's changed a lot. Um, so your question was. Thinking about that little girl sitting in the backseat of her dad's car, he asked and you answer, I wanna help people. Now we're here and we have the PhD, several years post-PhD. How do you feel like you're still helping people? Do you feel like you're answering that? Yes. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> Keep me on track, please. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I think it's, and you know, and this might be an overly positive um, answer, uh, but I think it has, and you can look at it in terms of, or I might look at it in terms of the scale. So if you believe in our profession and you love our curriculum, I don't know, that might be too strong. I love our curriculum, okay? I'm just gonna say it. But um, if you believe in our profession and you're interested in educating our next generation of social workers, heck yeah, um, this is meaningful. You can, you forge these relationships with students and then they don't stay students forever, right? They become our next generation of practitioners. They become part of our social work community. They are supervisors for our current students. They're the family, right? Um, I think there has been, for me, tremendous meaning in that. And if you, and, and I guess another plug for those thinking about a PhD or DSW, if you believe in the profession, you and you like that and you have a skill set for that direct practice and you also have intellectual curiosity and you like to read and write and I think you got to have a little bit of a thick skin um, and don't completely hate being evaluated at every turn 
higher education is an avenue to get you to a position, maybe to make larger scale change. And of course, even that is seeds being planted, right? So, and that's, so I think that's true in terms of, you know, the research work that I do. Um, I'm always tickled if it looks like somebody read something I wrote. (laughs) And then I'm always like, did I cite myself? Like, is that what, is that that person? So, you know, repress it and move on. That's such a great answer. And thank you for speaking to the audience because we do, we have such smart students who want to go back and get that PhD in DSW. And then we have some who've been out of, you know, out of education for a minute and they're like well what's next and so then to know that this is a route and it's a viable route I think it's very very important for those who are looking into that pursuing that doctoral um one of the things so I I didn't know I didn't you know being the first in the family but having somebody in the class in the and I can tell you exactly who it was in the MSW program who here plans to um, attend or enroll and get their uh, PhD. And I was one of the few who raised my hand because I knew there's something very obsessive about me. And once I got the master's degree, it's like the dog with bowl of food and I wasn't going to stop until it was. It, so it's more of a personality feature. But in plugging, why might it be worth considering going into higher education as social work faculty? You know, I, I talk about the value of the relationships and the meaningfulness of of seeking and maintaining, having those positive relationships with students who go on to become our colleagues. So that's one third of the job. Here's the other parts, right? Service is part of higher education and service is also part of our code of ethics. Now, there's some overlap there, but not necessarily, right? NASW doesn't care about my committee service, CSWE might. Um, But so there's the service aspect where you can serve your department, your college, your university, but also your community and your profession. And I think that there's a lot of uh, opportunity there. And then finally, there's the research piece. So again, if you find that you're intellectually curious or have a really strong devotion to a particular topic or question, that could be your end too. And there's a lot of space here, you know, for all the things that I could say in in a critical way, there's a lot of space within higher ed if you're thinking about becoming social work faculty to merge these three uh, and to work in really innovative ways that hopefully are impactful. But again, we're planting seeds. So, and when I'm in the classroom now, whether it's their first semester or they're getting ready to graduate, I ask them who here thinks, who here thinks you might want to pursue a doctoral degree? And because I at least, if, if the answer is no, hey, I get it. Um, but at least for it to be on people's radar, this is an option for you. This is this or this could be an option for you and knowing for them to know they have resources to kind of guide them along the way, because, you know, many of our students also are first generation. So that's a big deal for them to be where they're at right now, much less thinking about going out on that limb and going all the way. You know, it can be daunting to to think about. And it is um, certainly a stressful process. But I think you know, for people just to know it is a possibility and you don't have to go that road alone. In fact, it would be pretty a difficult thing to do. So find your people, get your supports and go forward. 
That is such a great answer. And I love that it started with your first job where he said to you, Lauren, have you thought about getting your MSW? You hadn't. And now full circle, you're asking people in your classroom setting, have you thought about your doctorate? And they probably had never thought about it before you asked that question. And then now they know it's possible. So what I believe our job is, regardless of what level we are in the social work profession, is to advance the profession. And that is absolutely what you're doing is advancing the profession. Lauren, where do you see yourself going on this social work journey? So I always make a joke that, um, which may or may not be appropriate, but let's find out, um, that if I quit my job, I'm going to join a the circus or a metal band. And so I do have a drum kit and I'm practicing certain maneuvers. Um, so that's plan B. Or start a buffalo farm where Stephen and I thought we might train therapy turtles. I want you to think about this as already a genius model, right? Because training turtles and we're going to call it therapins. Right. Okay. Yes. So just always have a backup plan. Um, where is the profession going? So I think, I mean, that's, it, it's the consummate question in my mind. Um, where are we going? Especially, it just reminds me of earlier when we were speaking about the digital welfare state, right? And to me, I cannot help but to think about all of these, uh, I'm not sure the word to use, I guess systems, but all, all these changes sort of happening at once, like concurrently. So you have, okay, wh where to begin? And I'm sure I'll leave some things out, but certainly we are undergoing some changes um, in higher education. Um, and those changes are sort of across the board. I'll leave it at that. Um, COVID, I'm sure everybody's sick of hearing about COVID, but I think we need to keep talking about it in terms of what the impact to people's mental health has been. The data are in, and it's exactly what you would think. It's depression, anxiety, and trauma. And so think about to, um, and I've gotten really interested in the impact to our students. So this is true across the general population, and then students, and I think part of this can be explained by the age, um, are affected in very unique ways and also economic things like, um, and, and um, factors of like student loans, um, concern about the future of the profession. I'm gonna do this thing, Renita, where I'm gonna get off track. Okay, so blah, blah, blah. Okay, and then the introduction of technology, right? And how that is changing things. And then the licensure issue which we knew we would probably kind of get to a bit. Um, so where is the where is the profession going? I hope that as I think in general across the board, I hope that the social work profession is going in a direction in which we as a profession are self-governing and that social workers, that we're the ones making decisions. We're the ones making decisions, for instance, around policy related to um, just licensing, that we're making decisions around uh, and doing the research so it's evidence-informed about licensure and alternative pathways or what things look like in combination. Um, 
I kind of go on this speech a little bit too in some of the direct practice classes, you know, when we talk about the DSM and the historic role or really lack of role of social work within the formulation of the of DSM um, classifications. Um, and yet it's a book that um, we use and it's referred to, it's not my term, but referred to as the Bible, the clinician's Bible. And of course, it's all tied into insurance. But my point is, if you're going to be a clinical social worker, you be the best one that you can be. And we need our voices at the table. And in fact, I think, and I wrote that in the, in the death penalty book too, is that we should be, um, I think, very much involved in all of these conversations and maybe even playing, not maybe, we should be playing a more prominent role. And I think especially as the profession grows and becomes more bureaucratized, I think that it is us, it is the social workers who need to be determining what direction that we're going in. And I think in doing that, we can have say in what the future of the profession looks like. Um, including when and how to use technology, how to do it ethically, and how to keep people safe. With just to go back to that real quick, so there's, you know, Friedrich Riemer and others write extensively about sort of these direct practice um, considerations. So, you know, confidentiality and consent. Um, and what I what I try to add to that conversation is adding to it from a critical lens and at that macro level, how has this impacted, for instance, um, democratic processes, right? How has technology been used to thwart um, those processes, elections, right, for instance? Um, and I think that, you know, going back to, again, this micro-macro um, idea of, how do you, you know, what does that micro practice look like within the larger context of people being full of misinformation, disinformation, of election systems being thwarted or called into question? Um, because what we're really talking about is participation, meaningful social, political, and economic participation, and being informed. That's part of informed consent. That's part of self-determination is making sure. So I'm really interested in how it has impacted that information landscape and also how um, it's been used to cause division socially, politically. And I think it would we would do well to think about who benefits from that division. I love that. I love that so much, Lauren. I wanna, I'm gonna ask the final two questions. I, I've asked everyone and I'm gonna ask you as well. As the profession is moving forward, hopefully we're turning our headlights on. <laughs> hopefully we got some seeds in our pocket to pick out some opportune times to, you know, plant. But, you know, you're on your social work journey and you're doing some amazing things and and you're teaching um, some amazing social workers to continue to advance the, the profession, what would you take with you? I, I, you know, I think I even want to ask you a little differently. What would you encourage the social workers of the next generation to take with them on their social work journey? And what would you encourage them to leave behind? Hmm. 
Um, I would say take with you some degree of that idealism. The world needs it. Um, there's nothing wrong with having an ideal, right? That's our code of ethics. Um, I would encourage people, most people, maybe not all people, but um, be true to your, be authentic to yourself and trust your, trust your instinct and hone that skill and ability to listen to yourself and it will serve you well um, from micro to macro. Um, so ho honing that skill. And I think to, um, I think, I don't know, this is just a question I have, but I sometimes wonder if we have an easier time advocating for others than we do for ourselves. And so I would just encourage folks out there to think about the relationship between those two things um, and how they're, they're separate, but how they're interrelated. Um, and I think on that note, um, we need to be kind to ourselves. We need to acknowledge not just that, you know, people in general or students across the board or our clients are are struggling with many things, including the uptick in um, mental health diagnosis, but this has impacted us too. Um, and I think that is a good place to start is doing some assessment there. Um, even though I'm sure that it can be difficult to think about, you know, if I told myself when I was graduating with the with my PhD in 2017, what the next number of years would be like, I, I don't know that I would have believed myself. And also, I don't know that I would have wanted to know. I think it would have been too much to know. So I'd encourage people to continue being brave, be courageous. And I think right now to look past differences and to support others and want to be of service and help to others is being courageous in this moment, um, especially as it feels like we're being asked to not do those things or that doing those things is wrong. It is not wrong. There's nothing wrong with helping people, right? And of course we wanna be critical with what we mean by help, right? Um, there's nothing wrong with what we're doing. The world needs it. And when the message that um, being kind, being of service, showing love is something to be feared, we really need to evaluate where we are as a society. And I think that as a profession, we go forward by continuing to show love and acceptance. I'm, I'm clapping. Such an amazing answer. I know I said those were my last two questions, but they're not. And I, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to ask these two questions and then we'll end it. We'll end it there. You're doing some research on um, on the ASWB exam. And, you know, the numbers just came out this year. I personally know several social workers who have passed, but also several who haven't. Um, I want to hear you speak on that as much as you feel comfortable doing. And the reason why is to let people know that there are researchers and policy advocators who are out there doing the work on a higher level. So it doesn't just feel like we're on this island unto ourselves, um, that there is work being done to create change. And then second, how to your level of comfort, you've mentioned your um, death penalty book. I know you have a couple other books because they're on my bookshelf. Do you mind sharing some of the the writing and how we can access those that you've um, published? 
Sure. It's only to your comfort level. <laughs> I, I absolutely. And thank you. I love, I love sharing my, uh, my stuff in terms of the pass rate. Uh, you know, I, I won't assume that everybody is aware of this situation, but I hope that more and more people are becoming aware because as to your point, that pass rate analysis didn't come out until it was 2022. So not, not even about a year ago. Right. And this was after a long standing call, um, by our professional organizations for the release of the data. Um, <clears throat> and essentially, you know, the spoiler alert is ASWB came out with um, some of the data. You know, it's not all out there. There's some kind of, there's some things hiding in there, but they, they released some and for the first time ever reported on demographic differences. And so what that report revealed was what there was long-standing concern about, and also we know this to be true of standardized testing. Um, and so what we found were, what we found, I didn't do, what ASWB reported that they found um, was that this is not a, this is supposed to be a competency-based exam, but that really demographics are predicting with the most strength, right? They have the most predictive validity of passing or not, and, and specific, race so that if you are black and african-american age so that if you're older and we call this ethnicity and language so that if english is not your first language those are one just even one of those is a predictor of passing or not and then this gets a little bit more complex too um, as we look at the tremendous between state variance um, in licensure uh, policy and, and sort of related regulation. And it's also kind of interesting to think, you know, um, <clears throat> not sure everybody is aware, but this is, it's not until that long ago that every state said, we're going to use the ASWB um, exam. And I, I want to say it's 2017, but it, all that to say, not very, very long ago, although a number of states were using it, it wasn't until just a few years ago. So now I'm talking about the growing up and the bureaucratization of the profession, you know, that, that's the double-edged sword. You want to be a real, you know, and we are a real profession, but you, you want that status. There's some things that can be very much lost in that process. And that's why, again, I think that it, we, as the, professionals need to helm this and it doesn't need to be contracted out, right? This needs to be in our house. This is our house. Um, so one of the, you know, what I try to do, I like to, I like to bring my stuff into the classroom in particular research. So I'll always kind of tell my class, well, this is, this is kind of what I'm working on. And I might show them like work through some of the analysis. This is how you would do it. Um, so I decided when I was teaching research methods, this, fall that I wanted to use that exam pass rate issue and that we would, and so I designed the class to, for the first half, look at this through the quantitative or statistical lens. And for the second half, how would we do a qualitative study on this? Um, but I think it caused some consternation for students, right? And, and might maybe even increase the anxiety. And that's a conundrum right there because that the goal is not to make people more anxious. The goal is to make people informed. And I agree with you in something that you said earlier. I think this is our moment. 
whether we are in higher ed, we're in direct practice, we're in a social work program right now, we're getting ready to do the license, we just got our license, this is where we all need to come together because we have a vested interest. But then there, you know, if we use a critical, a critical framework, it's gonna say well, there's maybe not a shared vested interest because the um that when if more people get a license, it somehow it makes the it makes the market too big, right? In terms of competition, that there would be because honestly, right? How could you radically um how could you challenge this? Everybody could surrender their license, right? But that would come at a great cost. Anyway, I'm not advocating that. I just am thinking outside the box. Um, so ASWB licensure, it is an issue that the profession is grappling with. Um, and I think it is a solution that we can find by all of us coming together from within the profession. Okay, the other, oh, let me say too, so I did a, Stephen McGarry and I co-edited, we were the guest co-editors for a special issue on this. When Dr. Mowbray at UGA, he's over Journal of Evidence-Based Social Work, asked, does anybody have any ideas for, you know, pr proposals for a special issue? I was like, hey, this would probably be good and timely. But of course it was tricky because not much time had lapsed at home since the release of the ASWB report. I proposed it, Dr. Mowbray said, yeah. Um, and that should be forthcoming. And I have a journal, or a journal, I have an article in that issue with, with uh, McGarity, my colleagues here, and some colleagues at Salem State that I'm excited about. But what I'm really excited about is the issue as a whole, because as guest editor, I've been able to read all the articles that were, of course, accepted. And it is, I think it's going to be a very valuable and additive um, journal issue, and I hope to link this up with the policies being proposed regarding that interstate social work compact, because I think there's a way to address all these things at once, um, but some conversations need to be had. Um, so all that to say, maybe I can share with you the when that um, special issue is released, the link so that people can access it if in case they have any um, questions about it. And again, I, I'm really excited for the, the number of great articles that are going to be published in that. I'm not speaking about my own, but again, the ones I had the opportunity to read. And I was very, I'm just, let me just leave it at this. I'm very excited for what this contributes to the conversation. Okay, now on to the death penalty. Um, <laughs> so the, um, so my first, um, my my first line of research looks at death penalty stuff and specifically with the raised claim of intellectual disability and this is getting into disability rights and blah 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 okay so if you take this in social media you'd be like pick a lane here's my lane here's what they have in common is we're really looking at the recognition and distribution of rights and who is being excluded from what and it's really that social exclusion. Another way we could look at it is social control. Um, but it's that social exclusion framework that is the, um, that's my lens. And that's what these things have in common. Looking at who is being excluded from those social, economic, and political processes. Um, that book was actually the result of my dissertation work. Um, 
And I was fortunate because I was able to invite a lot of people uh, to contribute. I can't remember the number of authors. I think we were at about 17, but it was just, it was awesome. And these were relationships that I had forged through my dissertation work um, and then through those people. And it was really neat to see a project come together. And as I'm saying, the number of people that worked on this, I guess there was a lot of room that things could have could have gone sideways real quick. Um, and they they didn't. So actually, that's another good thing about higher education is being able to work with people and to manage projects. And I can be bossy. So but I think I'm good to work with um, that book is out there. If anybody has any interest, it's just it's very um plain, informative title. Oxford wouldn't let me get fancy because I, believe me, I try to throw a colon in there and have some stuff in there like, uh, no, ma'am, this will not fit. So I say, okay. Um, but it's just social work, criminal justice, and the death penalty. And it's organized where I have these writers. And so I came up with the organization of the book and I asked people, I reached out based on their area of expertise, hey, can you write this chapter? Um, it is a discourse that I think social work very much should play more of a, a role. And so if you look at through my research, you're gonna see some stuff on the death penalty. And that's me making the case for how, basically how to change policy. Um, and just the death penalty by itself is a very fascinating idea to me, how we're still, I mean, the anyway, don't get me started, read the, read the book. Um, so I have these, anyway, look me up, I'm on Google Scholar and, um, and you should be able to, get the list of, of works down there. And I think that that answered your question. That absolutely did. That did Dr. Lauren Richardelli. I'm hoping we'll be able to um, post your LinkedIn um, when we when we launch this episode so that if people are wanting to learn more about you, the work you've done and um, the publications that you have already out there, they can mm -hmm. follow you there and then also be able to um, know when the special journal. Yeah, no, that's perfect. Started. So I was going to um, see about making an announcement through LinkedIn too about that yeah. issue. Oh, and I did, I, I did have something I wanted to say, I thought about earlier, which is if anybody out there is thinking about the, about doing higher ed so you can get your doctorate not going to higher education right you can go do other stuff and maybe and get them get that pay a higher ed is pretty sweet salary too um but anybody thinking about it i would encourage you and often think about having this as a required reading for classes because you can either get a free or reduced subscription i would encourage people to subscribe to chronicle of higher ed this is these are some good, interesting stories that are going to give you sort of that all the landscape about higher ed. And they don't hold back. So there are things happening. I don't bring it to my students attention. It's not it's not for the classroom unless it, it does relate. But I think it will give you a sense of higher ed, where we're at right now, and maybe even potentially what the future looks like or what the possibilities are. Uh, and it's just good reading. It's good reading. And it's easy reading. It's easy. Yeah. 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 It's easy to read. I appreciate that. That was good. All right, Dr. R. All right. Can I just say thank you again and how important 
what you're doing is and that I cannot wait. I've already shared it with students. This is something that I'm going to share going forward because of what the value is for people to hear other people's stories. And I found myself, I, you know, when we were talking that night, I was like, you know, I couldn't stop listening. And what I found was I was captivated by people's stories, but it brought me back to kind of being in love with it. And I am, you know, but you get kind of caught up in the logistics and the politics and da da da, and to hear those stories, like it was like remembering why I'm in love again. And there, it was something almost therapeutic and refreshing and hearing those stories. So just again, thank you. And this links up to the ASWB, the licensure, right? And what you are doing and providing that mentorship. That's something that actually is written about in that article, right? We need this. We need these supervision communities. We need to disseminate this information to know we're not alone, to hear from other people about where they ended up and to see, you know, we're we're a big beautiful quilt. Overdrive is driving. Well, turn your headlights on, y'all. <laughs> turn them high. Okay. But turn not on, if there's oncoming turn. traffic. Okay. Exactly. Oh, I always enjoy my time with you. I really do. This was so informative and I feel like we're going to have to do a part two because we didn't get to touch on some of the things that I would like really do a deep dive on. Yeah. And so hopefully you'll, you'll, you know, think about coming back. I'll um, think about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Of course. Oh, good. But we'll definitely get your information uh, posted with your description of your podcast episode so that people can follow you on LinkedIn to get all those goodies and to get all the, um, especially with the upcoming special issue coming out. I really do think that people need to read that. So thank you again. And we'll see you next time. Okay, take care. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Goddesses of Social Work podcast. We are glad you were here. If you liked this episode, please come back to hear more stories of the journeys through social work and please leave us a review on Apple or Spotify. See you next time here on the Goddesses of Social Work podcast.